Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I love the sound of little guys going out. What a joy that is. Thanks a lot, uh, Jacob and Ben, for leading us. Two new songs. Really a joy to think about the theology of those songs and how important they are. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord to, uh, this week. And, and I know that many of you are planning on traveling. May the Lord bless you as you do that. We will be uh, in our regular time in the Word, First Timothy chapter 3 today, and then over the next two weeks, turn our hearts towards other things, and it'll be a joy to do that. But look in First Timothy chapter 3, if you would. If you were with us last week, you, we finished our introduction to this new section under God's guidelines for public worship, and beginning in chapter 3, church leadership. So if you'd look there, look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we'll read that together and turn our hearts towards this passage. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then, verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Verse 5, but if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Verse 6, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Verse 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Like we look with me now back to verse 1, and I want to preserve our time together. And so I want to look at that passage and begin uh, our time of really examining what the Lord have us see today. It is a trustworthy statement. Paul writes, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So Paul is carried along to clarify to Timothy in the church how this journey is to begin. As we think about those who lead the church, as we think about the, what is supposed to be done in the church, we understand that the whole letter was written so we know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God, which is... Uh, the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth, First Timothy chapter 4 tells us. And so it's a joy then to look at this and realize that this is authoritative. So he clarifies to Timothy, as you think about those who are going to lead in the church and the trouble that Ephesus has at this point, we saw that it's always been a call. And now in the church age, Paul makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is doing the calling in the heart of the man that God has marked for his service. And Paul labels this whole process, as we saw last time, a trustworthy statement. In other words, the directions here are to be relied upon as a clear guide. We marked four principles then from the first verse. It says this, if any man, and again, that was principle number one, the office of overseer, elder, bishop, is held by a man. And we've covered this extensively. And next we saw, uh, just now as well, number two, there's a definitive call in the background of the qualified man. And so as someone is coming to be a leader, a minister, a elder in the church, there has to be that definitive call. And it is described pretty clearly here, two different words for desire. The first word, uh, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, very strong personal desire to reach for that office. We saw that that is a work on the outside, a desire to submit to the qualifications, bringing the life into compliance. And then the second word, two different words here for desire. The second was a fine work he desires to do. There's a passionate compulsion that eclipses everything else. Whatever it was that you were doing, it's overshadowed by this one consuming desire. So a compelling drive on the outside and on the inside. These are the Holy Spirit's given desires that come into the life unbidden. The man might not have been thinking about ministry. You might not have been con uh, considering it. It's not something that your, your guidance counselor is going to say to you. It's not something that, that uh, someone who's in career guidance is going to say, this is what you should do. This is something the Lord does and he calls, as he always has done throughout the course of the history of his, lead as his interacting with men. So come into the life unbidden to lead the church, and he'll begin to pursue that on the outside and will be compelled on the inside. And these two desires have one focus, and it says there in verse uh, to, to oversee, verse 1 rather, to oversee the church. Uh, the office of overseer is the word episkopos, and it was the principle number three. The office includes the labor of oversight. It has the idea of investigation. It has the idea of inspection, of direction, uh, to lead people, to instruct them, to deal with difficulties, to supervise, to coordinate, make decisions, those things. And we saw from our introduction, that's the same thing as the office of elder, 
which is the word presbyteros, which simply breaks uh, down that office into spiritual maturity. It can mean an older person, and certainly does in some places, but here would have to go along with spiritual maturity. So not a novice, and we see that very clearly pointed out early, uh, later. And another word used interchangeably between um, overseer, elder, shepherd, poimaino, it's doing what it takes to take care of the flock. That's translated pastor, uh, one who feeds. Uh, he feeds and makes decisions. He moves them. He treats their injuries. He watches out for them. It's translated by the word guardian sometimes, same word. And so these are ideas that we understand are interchangeable that deal with the person who's in the pulpit. And we look at 1 Timothy 5.17, really gives an overall description. Verse 17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And those who serve as elders, pastors, overseers are proistimi. They are to rule. That is the verb for to be ranked first, to set over. Now, all these words refer to the same person. We saw that at length last time, so I don't need to go back through that. If you missed it or you don't understand any of that, it's all online. You can check it out. And then fourthly from last time in 1 Timothy 3.1, the office of overseer is a fine work. Number four, uh, that was uh, principle number four. As we give some handholds to the passage, which is why we do it this way, the Holy Spirit creates a desire to lead the church, and that is a, uh, the Scripture says, a wonderful calling. And so you get to get a picture of how God views it. It is, uh, it, God views the work, and as you speak for Him through the preaching of His Word, you're to have His heart for the church, you're to be willing to go when He asks who can lead, all these passages we looked at before, and labor in leading the church. And it's a demanding occupation, it's a wonderful thing, but it's work. And so I think it's important that, that we see this here because this provides some reassurance in the middle of this desire that the Lord has brought on to go to work in your own heart. And then you look at the elders who have been over you and you see the difficulty that they've been in. Some apprehension and anxiety can come in and you might think, well, maybe I'm not ready for this, but the Lord is able to say, this is a good work that you're desiring. The Holy Spirit has brought into your heart to do a lifelong demanding task. And we saw last time that Paul has carried along to task Timothy and to task Titus. And so we get these two examples. And those tasks are difficult and they're challenging. And to sum up some of what we've seen already over the last two weeks, elders are to rule the church. They're to lead it. it has to include teaching and preaching. We're to pray for it. We're to care for the congregation. We're to love them. We're to shepherd them and guard them. We're to set policy to ordain other elders. We're to give an account to the Lord for the church and do it in such a way that we can give a good account. We're to lead by example in life and ministry. And those are really big responsibilities. And so when we think about that position then, we have to know that uh, the church, after it was established by the apostles, that you begin to see this emphasis in every single church in the New Testament on elders, pastors, overseers, who are in this primary position. And they oversee the church, they lead the church throughout the New Testament. And because that's a serious job, the Lord hasn't left the qualifications up to chance or preference. It's not a human ability, as we saw last time. God has set the standard. And as we have said, these are exclusively character, lifestyle, and testimony types of qualifications. And it's important to realize that all these requirements we're going to begin to look at today, with the exception of apt to teach in verse 2 and not a novice in verse 6, apply to all believers. And that's where we ended last time. You need to understand that uh, there's just one standard for all believers and those who attend and those who lead. It's the standard of holiness, a godliness. It's not subjective. And so we see these here. 1 Peter 5, chapter 5, verse 3, as a matter of fact, instruct those who lead the church, and it says, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but, mark this, proving to be examples to the flock. So in the case of the church, faults may be present that, that we'll see here as requirements that can't be tolerated in those who lead. So let's begin to look at the qualifications of that godliness from verse 2 through 7 in reference to those who lead the church. And, and you see that apart from apt to teach, uh, these don't talk about duty. They're not going to talk about duties. They're not going to talk about function. Uh, they don't talk about performance. And so what I did last week is take you through those passages that talked about duties and function and performance. And those examples you saw from last time. And, and what we've looked at at Paul's examples many times is um, those, uh, those kinds of people that are brought into the church to lead. Uh, they're going to be qualities of character, virtue, morality, godliness, spirituality, lifestyle, testimony. So not personal ability, and not that you look like you can do it, but because God has picked, and these are the people he's picked. Now, look at verse 2, if you would, again. An overseer then, he says, 
must be above reproach. Verse 2, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So just in, from chapter 3, verses 2 through 7, you're going to have a big list. These are lists of godly uh, qualities. And they apply to everyone, but particularly to those who lead. So this is Jesus' church, the one who was born in the manger, the one who came to give his life as a ransom, the one who came to set up the church to continue that, uh, that call and that direction and the redemption of mankind. These are his requirements. Now, Paul's clear then that uh, a position of an overseer or an elder or pastor or shepherd, one who's in the primary position, the following characteristics, obviously not an exhaustive list. There are plenty of other things that could be added to that list, but represent the bare minimum in very real sense of, of for elders if they're to grace both the church and the world. And here's the first one, must be above reproach. And above reproach is, is a compound adjective and it has to do with not to be taken hold of. And epi leptos. So lambano is to take hold of, epi is upon, and then the alpha primitive, which is negates that quality. So the word is not to be taken hold of, so there's no part of his life that can be grabbed and pointed to as this is something that disqualifies him. And the verb to be is present active here. And so it helps give some handholds to the passage. That's our fifth principle. The, those who lead the church must be in a present state of blamelessness. So in other words, his present conduct should be of such a nature that no handle could be found to grab hold of which would injure his reputation. It doesn't mean now, just to clarify a little bit, it doesn't mean that he's never committed a sin in his whole life. It doesn't mean that in the past there wasn't something that was wrong. No one has been blameless all of their lives, including the men who lead the church. It's not a question of what, though, he did years and years in the past. That's the whole present active. It may be a question of what he did a few months ago or a few weeks ago or, or even a few years ago if it still has impact on his life now. Decisions that were made that would call into question his, his character. It, and it also doesn't mean that he had to be perfect before he was a Christian because no one could do that. Everyone, before they came to Christ, lived in sin and ever-increasing wickedness. And I think we understand that, don't we? And only wickedness. So the point here is that present tense, this man must have a life without blame. And mark this, this is an overarching requirement. What do I mean by that? Well, everything else that comes after this really, in a sense, defines what's meant by blamelessness. Do you get it? So he has to be blameless. An overseer then must be blameless and then it begins to give lists of things which will be the qualifications by which you determine whether he's blameless or not. It's a general, basic, overall requirement. And that has to do with reputation. And the following list then explains the various aspects of conduct that are involved, but it could include other things that may come up as well that's not, that are not included here, but that would be a handhold where he could be called out and it would damage his reputation. So, this is his observable conduct. And as I mentioned earlier, the list has everything to do with godliness. Now, mark it. If blamelessness is part of that example, then guess what's required of you? Blamelessness. The same blamelessness, as a matter of fact. And as we saw, it's just some things can be tolerated in the congregation that can't be tolerated in the spiritual leaders because it's a question of example and modeling as we saw in 1 Peter chapter 5. But just so you can get a handle on that, Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15, Paul is instructing the church at Philippi and he's instructing those who are attending there. And he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be, what's the next word? Blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. Does that mean you've never sinned ever in your life? No. Does it mean you'll never sin ever again? No. What does it mean? It just means that as a general conduct of your life, there's not something that somebody could point to as an unbeliever and say, this thing violates what I understand to be conduct that a believer should have. Do you understand this? Children of God above reproach, there's another qualification, above reproach. No one can come and level a legitimate accusation. Now, many people will level accusations. And if you're in the ministry long enough, you're going to have plenty of people do that. 
And if you're a believer long enough, you're going to know that people are going to level accusations at you. What you want to do, though, is make sure that in your life, you don't allow things that in your freedom you could allow, but that create a situation where people will begin to ask questions and believe that that compromises your testimony. Do you understand? So this is pretty clear. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So you have to be different from the world. A significant difference. One that aligns with godliness. Now, there's another passage that deals with it too. There are many, and we could look at this all afternoon. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, again, teaching as Peter talks to the church itself and not to those who lead it. Because in 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks to those who lead the church. But here in 2 Peter 3, 14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, since you look for the Lord to come, since you look for him to restore things and give the right names to the right people and all that kind of thing, what do you do in the meantime as you wait for the Lord to set things right? Well, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. So three things. In peace. So if you're going to be offensive, the offense will be the cross, right? And spotless and blameless. So you're set apart, and there's not something that somebody can look at and just say, this is obviously something you're doing that looks just like the world. Now, just to kind of illustrate that a little bit, there's, there's an old Puritan preacher by the name of Richard Baxter who ministered back in the 1600s. And I got to reading him this week, and it was really hard to get away from it because it was so engaging, and you'll see in just a minute. And to also reduce down to a manageable amount some of the things that he said because I think that they're so important. And get that he's, he's ministering in the 1600s. But he says this, he says, quote, as you think about blamelessness, as you think about spotlessness, as you think about um, innocence, he says, spend your time in nothing which you know must be repented of. That's a pretty easy way to start, isn't it? Don't spend your time in anything that you know you're going to have to repent of. In nothing on which you might not pray for the blessing of God. So don't spend your time in anything which you can't ask God to bless. In nothing which you could not review with a quiet conscience on your dying bed. In other words, as you review your life and know that you're moments away from meeting your Savior, there's nothing that you have a problem with that you're dealing with and you're wrestling with, you see? And in nothing which you might not safely and properly be found doing if death should surprise you in the act. That's pretty insightful, isn't it? He's also quoted as he wrote much about ministering in Christ's name, uh, talking specifically about ministers because that was really his focus, but also about the church, that blamelessness is of primary importance. And, and from a copy of Primitive Methodist Magazine, it, which was written in 1868, I found this, and it was just so, it just so moving to me. I'm going to share the whole thing with you. Just take a minute, but try to listen uh, closely. I think you'll appreciate his words and insight. He says, quote, The entire consecration to God is a subject of the greatest possible importance to all men. If religion be anything, it is everything. If there be a living and eternal God above us, if there be truth and inspiration in the Bible, if there be a living, spiritual, immortal something within us we call soul, if there be a world of ever-progressive and never-ending blessedness and a state of ever-accumulating and ceaseless misery to one of which we are constantly traveling, then religion is beyond comparison our chief concern. While this is true of every person, it is in many respects a truth of special importance to the ministers of Christ. First, it is a matter of personal consistency. He who preaches the gospel to others should enjoy and exemplify the holiness of the gospel in his own conduct. And then he quotes Romans chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. He says, You... Therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor, abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it's written. He goes on to comment on that. He says, in these words, the unfaithfulness and inconsistency of the Jews are presented in the most glaring contrast, and they injured the cause of truth instead of promoting it. And he goes on to be quoted in this article as he comments on Romans 2.21. He says, shall your tongue that speaketh against evil speak evil? 
Shall it slander and secretly backbite and censure while it is crying down these things in others? Will you who preach against sin in others bow down to it and become its willing slaves? Will you dishonor him as much as others? Will you, says Baxter, proclaim Christ's governing power and yet contempt it and rebel against it yourselves? Will you preach laws and willfully break them? If sin be evil, why do you live in it? If it be not evil, why do you dissuade men from it? If it be dangerous, why do you venture on it? If it be not, why do you tell men so? If God's threatenings be true, why do you not fear them? And if they be false, why do you trouble men needlessly with them and put them in such frights without cause? And he goes on along that line for some time, and, and I could have read a lot more to you, but it's difficult to bear because it rings true too many times, which no doubt is the reason why he wrote them reflecting on it himself, a preacher. And he makes a great illustration at the end of the section. He says, quote, I have read of Alexander the Great, how that he had a soldier of his name who was a coward, which when he understood this, he commanded to either fight like Alexander or else lay down the name of Alexander. And then he makes this application, which he did at the beginning of our excerpt. He says, consistency requires us to be what we preach to others or else cease to preach. To live as ministers of Christ or else cease to be his ministers, end quote. And he ends up with Psalm chapter 50, verse 16, as it applies to inconsistent preachers. He says, quote, but unto the wicked God saith, what hast thou to do to declare my statutes? Or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth, seeing as thou hateth instruction, and casteth my words behind thee. End quote. Obviously, very powerful and very convicting language. But no more so than Paul's words. It illustrates it, I think, perfectly. Paul says an overseer then must be above reproach. And all Baxter is doing is just elucidating what we should infer from Paul's simple and yet profound statement. Baxter says, unto a teacher is no small disgrace when his own faults reprove him to his face. See? And the same blamelessness is required of you as it was of the Jews of old with which, out, with which the name of Christ is defamed among non-believers. And I think the church falls into that trap a lot. Just like the Jews of old defamed the name of, Christ, defamed the, name of the Lord and the law of the Lord because they lived opposite to what they said, the church does that too. We go out into the culture and live opposite of what we say and then undermine the gospel's power. Now, let me just say, to be clear, because although reminders like this can be very helpful prompts, I'm not trying to create false guilt. I'm not saying that those who serve the church are sinless. They are not. Any more than I'm saying that you could say that about yourself, that you're sinless, because the same requirements are for both. It's just that for those who serve the church, in particular here as we start, blamelessness, there's to be no issue in our life that has the understanding of an ongoing sin issue. Okay? I'm not talking about preferences. I'm not talking about what you would do in the pastor's case. Not how you would run things. Not things you would say or how you would go about it. We're talking about obvious verse and chapter sin issues. And there can't be any of those. Because that would cause us to be blamed that would eliminate our example and create an opportunity for contentious people to undermine the integrity of the ministry or the church or the work of Christ. And without exception, if you aspire to the ministry, you're called to that. You have to be an example. And if you're called to that, then in order to be effective for God, you can be sure of one thing. The adversary, mark this, beloved, will do everything he can to disrupt your life at this level. There's a reason why so many pastors fall into sin. There's a reason why so many church leaders are not blameless, and so they're disqualified. And that's because the enemy works overtime to undermine their integrity, destroy the ministry, not because he, not because he cares one whit about the pastor, but because he can bring reproach on Christ. He's not concerned about Kurt Parker specifically. 
But if he creates an issue and I fall into it, which causes defame on the name of Christ, that's what he's after, see. And so Paul says, look, Timothy, you've got this problem here in Ephesus. And like I demonstrated to you before I left, you may have to get rid of some of these leaders. And you may have to bring in some leaders. But whatever you have to do, make sure to start with, they are above reproach. Examine their life closely enough that you know that they can't be called out. And so I think we can see that now. I think we understand that's an overarching requirement. I think we can see that the next few things that we follow, all the way through verse 7, become the qualifications by which you measure blamelessness. Now, what can't they be called out for, if you will? Because that requirement is overarching. So let's look at the, the next requirement. That'll probably be all the time we have. But look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then says must be above reproach, then here's this first requirement that they can't be called out for. The, over, the, the overarching then requirement for blamelessness includes this one. The husband of one wife. Now, the Greek statement is qualitative, and it's rendered one woman man. And that is principle number six in guidelines for public worship and the qualifications for elder leadership. He is devoted to one woman in his heart and in his mind. So he can't be a player. He's not a philanderer. He's not a womanizer. As George Knight says, he is, quote, a man who, having contracted a monogamous relationship, is faithful to his wedding vows. New Living Translation says it this way. He must be faithful to his wife. That's the issue. The issue here is the heart of the man, the moral character of the man. And again, the verb is, form is still present active. Now, I gave you the biblical terms and the meaning first so we can get the principle down. This is a correct understanding of the passage as it relates to the language. What I'd like to do now in the remaining time is clarify why we can be confident of that understanding because there are a number of things that have made their way into this passage particularly in this qualification which are incorrect. And so I want to just touch on a number of them so you know what they are and it'll be instructive in and of itself as you understand God's plan uh, for relationships. But there is an incorrect view that this passage is prohibiting polygamy. But polygamy wasn't a major issue in this period of time. This isn't the Old Testament. This is the Roman Empire. Paul regarded polygamy as unlawful, and he forbade it for everyone in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, not just for leaders. No one was allowed to be involved in polygamy. It was never God's plan from the beginning. And so Romans didn't typically have polygamous marriages. Why would they even bother? They had concubines, they had temple prostitutes, the divorce was rampant, they could switch wives when they wanted to, sexual promiscuity was rampant, just like today, which fits the understanding, the actual understanding we have, which is a moral issue. So it's not polygamy, it's not talking about polygamy. Uh, number two, another incorrect view of the passage is that it means you could never be married to more than one person, so you could never have a second wife. But the problem is, with that, is that's not what the text says. It says one woman man. This is speaking about character, not marital status. And, and he could have worded it any way he wanted to so that we were clear. The big problem then when you take it this way and you say, okay, he could never have had a second wife, is you take that incorrect understanding to other places in the Scripture and now you're going to be sideways with those correct interpretations. There's some places in Scripture where God permits and honors second marriages. And I'm going to look briefly at a few passages so you can see this. But in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, it says a widow, and you're going to wonder why I'm talking about this, but stick with me, you'll see it in just a minute. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. So we're going to look at this passage at length in a few months, but what's going on here is, remember the passage, the whole letter is how you're supposed to conduct yourself in the church. And in every church, all the way through the history of the church, but particularly in this New Testament church, they had a large number of widows who were attending in Ephesus. So how do you determine which ones the church is going to help? Because the church is supposed to help widows. Well, he gives some qualifications here. How old do they have to be? At least 60 years old. Now, I think it's important to point this out. They have to be over at least 60, but the first qualification to be put on the list where the church would begin to take care of them is she is a one-man woman. You catch that? It's the same Greek phrase we saw in our passage, except in reverse. Does it mean she's never been married to anyone else? Well, it can't mean that, because if you just go down four verses, you're going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, 
Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. So what was supposed to happen? Well, he says in verses 11 through 13 that the church shouldn't put younger widows on the list to be taken care of by the church because after they vow to stay single and serve the church, they may get caught up in immorality. So to avoid that, what's he tell them to do? To marry. And these women referred to here are widows. They're just a lot younger. So they lost their husbands when they were young. So he says that widows ought to remarry, bear children, rule a house. So I think what we can take from those two things is this. God honors a second marriage in the case of the death of a first partner. In fact, he says young widows should, what? Remarry. And that pleases God. And that's the command that's given here. Nothing wrong with a second marriage in a widowed situation. And we're going to see this over and over again as a general interpretive principle. Mark this. God's not going to command something in one place that's going to be considered a sin someplace else. I think you can see that, right? That would be very awkward, wouldn't it, as you work your way through the Bible? Well, he commanded somebody to do it, but then he's going to regard it as a sin. Or from another way, if a command is a blessing from God or to God in one passage, it's still a blessing from God or to God in another. Just in general, if you're going to get the interpretation right, you have to get it right that way. Now, some of you may remember that we looked at this a lot in these passages in our series of God's plan for the family, divorce, and remarriage. And so we're going to look at some of this, and this will be review to some of you, but I think it'll help clarify our understanding and a correct understanding of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, a husband of one wife, a one-woman man. But one of those places is in Romans chapter 7, verse 2. And this is where you move from a preacher to teacher. You kind of switch hats. I want to make sure that you understand biblical interpretation, how you approach a passage so you can understand what it meant, not what people tell you that it means, not what the church says that it means or whatever, but actually what it means because sometimes they vary. How do you approach the passage to make sure you've got the meaning right? Romans chapter 7, verse 2, as, it, as we just looked at 1 Timothy 5, 9 and 5, 14, Romans 7, 2, and 3 are going to help our understanding. Here's what it says. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now, in the case of the death of a partner, you are free to what? Remarry. And anytime God uses the word free, you can understand that is not violating God's commandments. You're free. You're not under the command. Do you understand? And so they're allowed to remarry, and there's no, sti- there's no stigma of adultery. There's no problem there. God's not saying it's not good. And we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, that he actually commands young widows to remarry, which pretty much which goes perfectly with what we just read. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 is another place that we see this. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married, to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So the death of a spouse allows remarriage with no stigma, no sin, you're free. What's the only qualification then we see here that's added to our understanding of being free? They have to be believers. If you remarry, you can't marry a non-believer. Now, we understand that very clearly uh, from other passages in Scripture. You're not to be unequally yoked together in marriage uh, or any other place with a non-believer. So you can't marry a non-believer. But here... That person might have died, and so you can get married. And what does the Lord say? It agrees with his understanding before that we saw that the person has to be a believer. You can remarry, but they have to be a believer, only in the Lord. So, as you think about 1 Timothy 3, verse 2, a one-woman man, there can be no blanket statement there that prohibits remarriage after the death of a spouse. So you can't say that that passage means you can never have had a second wife because Scripture actually says that that's a good thing. And it should occur. So it can't have that meaning. It can't have that implication that you can't have a second wife. Now, another incorrect view of the passage is that the passage is talking about divorced people. They would say, and this incorrect view says it this way, the passage right here means you can't be an elder if you've ever been divorced and or remarried. Now, again, that's not what the text says. It says one woman man. It could have easily said that very thing that you can't be an elder if you've ever been divorced. That would have been simply, uh, simple language, easy to put in, would have made it very clear for everyone, okay? So that's the first problem with that understanding is that it doesn't say that. Now, 
Again, if you take that understanding elsewhere, you can't make it work because there's going to be some ways that you are allowed to divorce and remarriage as it relates to something besides the death of a spouse, which the Lord says is okay. Now, in general, and you know this if you've been with us as we talked about the family, God hates divorce. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, and many other places make it clear that there are some stipulations on divorce. Verse 31 says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, as Jesus speaking, that everyone who divorces his wife except for reasons of unchastity make her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So first principle there, you can't divorce your wife for any reason that you want. If it's any other reason than adultery, impurity, then you cause her to commit adultery when she remarries, and by implication, you also will commit adultery too. Because the Bible always assumes remarriage. Every single instruction we get all the way through the New Testament is going to assume remarriage and what the condition will be if the person remarries. So in, in the case of a spouse dying, you're not under the law, you're free, and you can remarry. It's automatically assuming that you're remarried. And in 1 Timothy 5.14, it actually commands younger widows to remarry. So I think you can see this. But the Bible teaches that remarriage after a divorce is within the will of God under some circumstances. And we just saw the circumstances. Because we just saw in God's grace and in His mercy where there is a marriage of two people and one of those partners is in a continuous, adulterous, evil, sexual, sinful relationship from which they will not return and repent and not make it right that God allows by His grace that innocent partner can be free from the bondage of that vile person and the freedom from that bondage is freedom to remarry. You're an adulterer if you divorce your wife for some reason besides adultery and purity and remarry and you cause her to commit adultery and continue in a state of adultery. Here, it says that if you're in that vile relationship and the Lord, they won't repent and continue, you are free to be divorced and to remarry. And remember, and just so that you can see this clearly, in the Old Testament, if your spouse committed adultery, what would happen to them? Anybody know? They'd be stoned, which would free them up as a widow or a widower. And we've already talked about that situation, have we not? If you are a widow or a widower, are you free to remarry? You are. So if you translate that then and make that clear and continuous throughout both Testaments, you would say that in God's grace, He doesn't require the death of an adulterer. But that doesn't diminish the terrible sin, does it? And so in Matthew 5, we see that He also doesn't bind the innocent party to a marriage to an unrepentant adulterer, and He doesn't require the innocent party, if they divorce, to remain single for the rest of their life. I think you can see that. He allows the offended party to remarry. So there are two situations which God allows divorce and remarriage. We've already looked at one. Here's the other. 1 Timothy chapter 7, verse 15. If the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So what's the situation? You have a marriage situation where one person is a believer and one person is not a believer. How would that happen? Well, they wouldn't have married that way. That would be sinful from the start, right? You don't marry an, un, an unredeemed person. What happened, though, as we've talked about before, is the gospel goes out in power in the first century, and it goes into all these pagan cities, and preaching is powerful, and people come to faith. Do they not? That's how Corinthians, the, 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 the church in Corinth began. Uh, Paul began preaching. Many people were saved, and so you can see it happening. People come to a meeting. They hear the gospel. One half of this relationship believes, either the man or the woman. The other half doesn't believe. They're still involved in all the wickedness that a pagan unbeliever would be involved in, bound in marriage to a redeemed person. And that redeemed person is thinking, man, it would be really great to not be married to this unredeemed person. I'd love to marry a person who's redeemed. What a great relationship that would be. We're both of one mind, desiring to serve the Lord. We're no longer involved in the temple prostitutes or any of the other stuff, right? But the verse right before this one, and you can read this on your own, says, if the person wants to stay, if the unbeliever wants to stay, let them stay. In other words, you're not to divorce a person just on the basis of whether or not they receive Christ or not. And it goes on to, to illustrate that and says, how do you know 
by your own godly life that you won't see their redemption. It might happen. If they want to stay with you, a lot of blessings come as a result of one half of that relationship being born again. And part of that is that the other spouse may come to faith. And the other part is that your children also have that protection over them because of your relationship with the Lord. So it's a, it's a really wonderful thing. But you have this one spouse married to an unbeliever. The Lord says, though, if the unbeliever wants to stay, let them stay. In other words, you're not free to divorce and remarry just because they're not a believer. But here's our passage in verse 15. It says, but if the unbeliever wants to leave, they can. And the believer is, what's it say? Not under bondage. What's that mean? The same thing as it means to be free. The same thing as it means that you're not an adulterer. You're not under the requirement of the law to remain married. You may remarry and you won't be considered an adulterer or an adulteress. Do you see? So again, if you come under the view that this, this, what it's talking about is this means you can never be divorced or remarried. First of all, it could have said that to begin with and it would have been clear. It didn't. It talks about a moral relationship between a man and his wife if, they happen to be, if there's a marriage relationship there. So you get here and you, you see that it can't possibly mean that because there are several situations in which a person could have a second wife if the first one passed away and not be considered an adulterer and still qualify as a one-woman man. And it's possible that the person uh, could have had an adulterous wife and they were unrepentant and they were able to leave or the person was unredeemed. So there's a lot of, re- there's a lot of stipulation there and, and uh, correction for that false understanding of that passage. Now, God hates all divorce. Let's go back there, okay? But is gracious to the innocent in these two situations. One, when a partner commits a continuous sexual sin and won't repent. And two, when the unbelieving partner leaves. In those two situations, the Bible teaches that the believer is free to remarry, of course, only to a believer. And you know, if you were with us, there are a number of other things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that Paul says that we don't have time to look at today, but are peripheral to this issue, and it clarifies what a single person is and what a uh, virgin is and all those kinds of things. But it's not to our point here, uh, although it would be instructive for you to continue to read it. The point I want you to see is that remarriage in and of itself is not a sin and not a disqualifying uh, uh, handle of which you could point at those who lead the church and say, see, this is wrong. Because we see clearly from the language that you can't say that without running afoul of other passages in Scripture. If a person was widowed and remarried, that's not a sin. If a person is the innocent party in a divorce where the other person was an, an unrepentant adulterer, a remarriage is not sin. And if an unbeliever departed, a remarriage is not sin. So we can't blight someone's life with a second marriage as if that in itself were sinful if the Lord allows it in some circumstances. Now, the language of 1 Timothy 3.2 doesn't support the understanding that you can never be remarried. I think you can see this. Now, let's qualify this because I, I know you probably have some questions. And there are a hundred questions and circumstances that come into this. And I've answered many, many in Q&As in the past. But I just want to give you this one that's probably diffuse a lot of your questions. Here it is. There are other places in these qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that may impact the question of marriage. It isn't here. But if you move on down, especially divorce and remarriage, if you move on down to verses 4 and 5, you're going to find them. As you see this qualification, he says, it says, Paul says to Timothy here, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Now, stop right there. So the question of divorce and remarriage would have to be evaluated here. Because people ask, you know, what if the pastor is married and his wife commits adultery and, and wouldn't repent and took off? Could he remain in the ministry? And there are any number of things and combinations of situations that could come in to that whole question. A lot of stipulations and things that you may come up with. That would be another test you would have to apply. And so the question is, in the divorce... And whatever happened in this divorce, does this situation expose an inability to manage his household? It very well may. And there's always two sides and two issues involved in a marriage that's in trouble. It would always seem like it's only one side when you talk to one half of the couple. But then when you talk to the second half, you realize there's a whole bunch more things that were going on. You see? And you have to think about 
present active. Was this divorce and remarriage back before they were born again? Or was it way back and now they have raised since godly children and brought them up under, you see? So there's a lot of things that have to be asked and questions that have to be asked, which again is why I bring to you the understanding that the typical way a church evaluates their pastor doesn't even come close to the requirements that we see here and the questions that need to be asked and the things that need to be examined so that you can say they're above reproach. I think you can see uh, that, and, and if you have questions, of course, I'm always willing to answer them, and we will have a Q&A, public Q&A here coming up fairly soon. You can just jot that down and ask me then, or send it to me. I'd be glad to, to um, add more to that if it's helpful. But, um, and quickly, just because we're out of time, there, there are some, there's at least one other incorrect understanding of the passage. Here's what it is. In order to be a one-woman man, you can't be single. You'd have to be married. And, and again, that's incorrect because, number one, it would mean that Paul had been disqualified, right? The idea is a moral issue. If you are married, then you have to be a one-woman man, you see? And the Bible automatically assumes that marriage is for most people, right? The Lord made a wife to be a helpmate, and the Lord, that is the normal thing that happens. It doesn't always happen. The Lord gives special grace to be single all your life and to... And usually those kinds of people are such a big blessing in the church and have blessed you. You've probably been blessed by people who the Lord has given the gift of singleness. But marriage is for most people. Paul was single and he wasn't disqualified. So understand that doesn't mean, you know, you were single. A question, you know, again, uh, somebody will say, well, if you're going to manage your own household well, keeping your children under control, you must be married and have a family. Well, again, the same issue applies. That's a false statement because Again, the Lord most of the time gives children, and that's his blessing, but sometimes he doesn't. So if you don't have children, are you disqualified? No, not any more than you would be if you weren't married. Here's the question, and here's what really runs afoul of a lot of guys in the pastorate. Do their children walk with the Lord and come up under him? Because see here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the word for child is a small child, one that is in your house. In Titus, it's the word for an older child. Here they have to be under control. In Titus, it says they can't be accused of dissipation. What's that mean? Well, what typically it means when somebody thinks about PKs, that they're just wild and unruly and never obey. If that's how they turned out, beloved, guess what? You're disqualified. It may not be your fault that they chose to walk in, un, in worldliness. It may not be your fault that as people look at them, that's what dissipation means, that they don't resemble anything that has to do with the gospel. But the fact that they're walking that way disqualifies you from doing it. Why? Because it brings a question upon the ministry and the church and the testimony. It's a handhold, you see, and you're not supposed to have any. So when your children are little, they have to be under your control too, in obedience. And we, you know, I've given you plenty of instruction on how to do that. Bring your children up under obedience with you. Okay. And so we won't talk about that here, but these false narratives here about, okay, you've got to be married or you've got to have children. This is false. And, and all these other ones, I think you understand as we've gone through. Now, as we close here, uh, and this is just obvious, it, it's, not, um, it's not marital status that's in view here, a one-woman man. It's not the circumstance of the marriage that's in view here. The issue here, then, is moral qualifications. He is devoted to one woman in heart and mind, like we said earlier. That's the issue. That's what the words actually mean. Because, beloved, let me tell you this. You could be married to one woman for 40 years and never qualify as a one-woman man. And I think many women have lived that life, have they not? Who has a husband who's a player and a philanderer all their life. So he could, if you incorrectly evaluated and said, okay, it just means that he's been married only to one person, it can't, it, that would not qualify either if you were a player, if you were a philanderer. See, if there were others that you chased after, that would disqualify you, see, even though you've only been married to one person for 40 years. You see, the problems you can get into when you try to twist that to say something, it doesn't actually say. You have to move through the qualifications and get to other questions and say, okay, what does, how does this come to bear? So this is a high qualification, and it's the one Paul is carried about by the Holy Spirit to start with. He can't be able to be called out on this issue. Because this is the one that seems to cause the most difficulty. This is the one we read about the most. The second one is what? Money. Right? Mishandling money. Many pastors have gone to jail for mishandling money. But this was the first one. As many pastors disqualified themselves 
because they don't, they aren't a one woman man in the purest sense, as this says, although they may be married. And so, men, that standard is holiness. So as I think and I've explained to you how it applies to me, don't think in any respect that it doesn't apply to you. A one-woman man is your responsibility too. Not because you've just been married only to her for 30 years. That's not just it. In heart and mind, you are committed just to her. There are no other women in your life. You're totally faithful, committed totally to the woman of your vows. That's the reality of your life now. That's the reality of those who serve as leaders in the ministry. All right? So I think you can see that. I, I think I've given you enough. We're out of time. So um, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. And then we've got a few things to do today. So it's a joy to do them. Let's, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to open your word and to hear from you. We know that every word that you've written is tested. Uh, this is your son's requirements for the church that he established with his sacrifice and resurrection. Father, we know that you're holy, holy beyond our, even our understanding in the, in the respect of you separated from us. And we know that your home is in heaven, but you sent your son to bridge the gap and, and walk where we walked and show us yourself in fullness in him. And Father, we thank you for the church which was sent here to build the kingdom and to do your will. So it's our desire to do that. And we start even by how the church is led. We, we see that we're supposed to pray for all men everywhere. And so we think about that now. You think about the church and, and the first requirements you gave uh, to Timothy to make sure the church was reset to do is to teach for pure love, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, and to pray for all men everywhere, and all men who are kings and all in authority, that we may live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and sincerity. Father, we thank you that we can pray now. We think of other nations where war is uh, active, and we think about the wicked leaders, and we pray for their salvation, that the church in those nations can function in tranquility and peace, doing the job you've called them to do until your son comes. And we think about uh, those who are far from us, who, those who lead here in our own nation. And in this time around the birth of your son, as we remember that, I pray that hearts will be soft and that uh, gospel ministries will uh, turn the light on. That in your patience as you've waited and not brought judgment, I pray that in that patience will result in the salvation of men who lead. We can live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness. And Father, as we think about these requirements and we think about godliness, there's only one standard. And so, Father, I pray as we even think about our own selves, it's easy to point at the one who stands in the pulpit or maybe ones who've stood in the past that you've known. It's easy to point, but the, the fingers point back because the, God, the standard for godliness is there for everyone. And so I pray that we'll bring our lives into that understanding and discipline, that there won't be opportunity for some to point fingers. There won't be opportunity for offense to be taken and people to say the things you allow in your life. Why do you allow them? That's what unbelievers do. Help us to be really aware of that because our testimony to the outside world, as we're going to see later in this passage, the pastor has to be blameless to those on the outside of the church. So do we, so do all of us. It matters what we do. People watch. And so Father, bring us understanding here. It is a complex issue, many questions, many situations, but I pray that you give us understanding. Help us understand what your word says. We're not talking opinion here. We're not uh, preferences. Just what your word says, what it means by what it says, and how does that apply. Lord, I pray that you give us understanding here, and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we long to see, love to celebrate this season. It's in his name we pray. Amen.